Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 941. On this week's episode, David Lorela brings a pair of interviews with a pitching focus. First up, David is joined by Tampa Bay Rays right-hander Colin McHugh. The pair talk about what it is like to be a Major League veteran while the game is getting younger, what it was like to convert to full-time relieving, and how it feels to not have reporters in the clubhouse. McHugh also shares his feeling on knuckleballs, pitcher wins, striking out the side, getting his first career hit off Clayton Kershaw, and the time him and battery mate Evan Gaddis came up with a plan for facing Prince Fielder. So, second at bat, he calls changeup in. I'm like, screw it, let's do it. Throw a changeup in, nasty. Swings through it. I mean, he thinks he's going to pull it into the upper deck. Swings through it, misses it. Come back around a couple pitches later, Evan calls it again. He's like, all right, here we go. I'm like, yes, I'm going to punch him out again. I throw it, and he hits that ball so hard. He hit it, I mean, I think it was off the facing of the upper deck in the old Arlington Stadium. After that, David welcomes Kyle Bodie to the program. Kyle is the founder and owner of Driveline Baseball, and until recently was the Reds' director of pitching. Kyle has wonderful things to say about a number of Cincinnati's pitching prospects, including Hunter Green, Nick Lodolo, Stevie Branch, Lion Richardson, Graham Ashcraft, and more. Kyle also reflects on his experience with the Reds, and while he takes a lot of pride in the progress the organization made, he also realized some things that felt just as important. Largest gain ever, you know, in all minor league baseball. We we outgained everyone. And you think, man, that's really cool from a sabermetric perspective. It's really cool from a fantasy baseball perspective. It's really cool from a GM perspective. It's all true. I'm not trying to take any away of that. But then when you find out what it means to the kid, it's hard not to get emotional. You know, as the fake Billy Bean said in the Moneyball movie, you're like, how could you not be romantic about baseball? And then that's it. You know, when you see kids that were, you know, just seen as org fillers that are going to pitch in the big leagues, I mean, man, it, it does make you tear up a little bit. There's no no denying it. But before we get to these segments, I must suggest you head on over and check out the Fangraphs.com shop. Not only do we have cool merch you should see, but you can snag an ad-free membership, which is the best way to browse the website as well as support what we do. Podcasts, articles, stat leaderboards, analysis, and all the other great stuff we offer is all thanks to the support of our members. We couldn't do it without you. Thank you. Enjoy the show. Hey, baseball fans, this is David Lorela. My guest is Colin McHugh, veteran right-hander, podcaster, Arsenal fan, husband and father. Does that pretty much cover it, Colin, or am I missing anything uh, too important in the introduction? (laughs) It is weird calling myself a veteran at this point. I feel like I've always been... I've always felt like the young guy, even though I've always been a little bit older than the uh, the average guy with my service time. So I feel like my age and my service time are finally like in that sweet spot right now. Right. So you will accept veteran right-hander as a description. I will accept it, yes. <laughs> Reluctantly, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. On the subject of introductions, I believe that we first spoke seven years ago, at which point I devoted a few hundred words to you in, in a Sunday Notes column. When you look back at that, Colin, do you recall having any familiarity with Fangraphs in 2014? Not really. I think it was the very beginning of, I mean, it was the first year I came to Houston. It was kind of my first dive into analytics at all. Like, I think it was probably on the on the front side of anybody understanding that analytics and baseball were kind of going to be so uh, intimately connected over the next decade. But yeah, that, that was kind of, that was kind of the very beginning for me. And this is seven years later. How familiar are most players with sites like Fangraphs? And and on a related note, do you think most guys enjoy answering questions about things like pitch design as opposed to maybe more, you know, old-fashioned beat writer questions? 
Yeah, I think, the well, the game's getting younger, first of all. And a lot of these young guys have come up through organizations, even even some of them through the amateur ranks, understanding a little bit more about pitch design, understanding a little bit more about kind of how advanced StatCast analytics and TrackMan and, you know, Edertronic and, and stuff that we didn't have when I came up, that they've kind of become, they're essentially experts on it by the time they even get into the league. So, you know, I'm having conversations with guys, with young kids who have been doing this basically their whole career and been developing themselves as pitchers using these technologies. And I, th- I think, you know, Fangraphs and, and other publications like that, I think, do a really good job of highlighting that. And I think for the average fan, becoming a little bit more knowledgeable about those things makes the game more fun, at least at least from my perspective. And what about the, the players, though? Because a lot of times I will be asking questions to a pitcher or even to a hitter you know, about things like blast motion or K-Vest. And I wonder how similar this conversation that I'm having is with what they speak to with their, their pitching coaches. So we've got a really, I think, unique situation over in Tampa with from kind of from the top down to the bottom of the organization, you know, from Eric Neander, you know, the, the head of the head of the ship and Kyle Snyder kind of running things on the pitching side. It's very interlocked with what we do on a daily basis. Um, you know, everybody that's getting on the mound on a daily basis is kind of pitching in front of a track man for the most part. We've kind of know what those numbers mean in, in general uh, when we're pitching, what we're trying to shoot for um, in, in both pitch shape and pitch design and and also at the same time trying to keep it simple. You know, we our philosophy is is not to try and make every pitch the nastiest track man pitch you can do, but to use it as a tool to be able to essentially get better every day as as a pitcher. And so, you know, I can't speak to hitters in, in terms of how they are using it kind of these advanced advanced analytics and, and statistics from a blast motion standpoint or from a what do you call it? Like a like launch angle and barrel rates and all that kind of stuff. I'm I'm not a hundred percent sure how they put that into their routine, but I know from a pitching perspective, we at least over here are are really well well versed in and what this stuff means. No, for sure. Jumping back to the the reporter angle on this, what has it been like to not have reporters in the clubhouse for the past two years? I mean, last summer was <laughs> what was was obvious that they weren't going to be there. This year, arguably, they could be by now. But how do the players view not having those relationships yet having you know time just with their teammates? Ah, uh, man, I'm I'm going to be honest, and you're not going to like this, and I I already apologized to. All of the reporters and, and media members out there, uh, I've talked to you know Passon and, and Lindsey Adler from the Athletic and, and some of my other journalism friends throughout the industry about this, and it's kind of great to have space that is yours as players. You know, in in the past, we've had specific times where media can come into the clubhouse and they can be around, and I fully understand that from a media perspective, it is hugely influential to be able to be around players and have conversations a little bit more organically and naturally kind of as they come up and with the access also comes like familiarity and with familiarity typically comes better better questions better answers and and better stories but from a player's perspective it is so nice to go into a spot that feels like yours and know that it really kind of is your little slice of heaven in terms of players you can kind of have the conversations that you want. You can be on the routine that you want. Um, you can like go to your locker and not think about anything, about anybody being around, about conversations that 
may or may not be happening and you can talk across the room to somebody and it's been nice it's been nice from that perspective and i know they do it a little differently I'm a, I'm a big soccer fan like you said i'm an arsenal guy in europe and an atlanta united guy back home and you know I, I, the way it works in in soccer kind of around the world is media is not allowed in the locker rooms and i remember when some of the south american and, and european players came to atlanta united and in the states you know the media had had more access it was kind of a, a big shock to them. And so we've kind of seen the reverse of that now where American players are starting to get a, a sense of kind of ownership over their own space and over their clubhouse. And I don't know what it's going to look like moving forward is a long answer to a short question. But yeah, I can't say I've disliked it. And I'm sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> no, fair enough, Colin. Jumping to the current season, but staying somewhat with reporters. Have any reporters asked you, this summer, if this is your quote-unquote best season performance-wise of your career. Now, I took a look at, at your page at Fangraphs, your stat page. Along with a 6-1 and one record, you have a 1.34 ERA and a 2.12 FIP. This is as of uh, Tuesday afternoon we're talking. Is this your best season? It's hard to say because as a reliever, I would say, yeah, it's probably my best season as a reliever. I became a full-time reliever in 2018. And then back in, and then the next year in 2019, kind of split time between starting and relieving. So really, 2018 and then this year are my only two years I've ever had as a as a full time reliever. And I thought 2018 was was really good in terms of the way I was able to attack and and be successful. But I was still brand new to it. You know, I'd never been a full time reliever before, so I was still you know learning, drinking from a fire hose um, that whole year. And then I think being able to pitch in the playoffs that season as a reliever. Gave me a little bit more, uh, a little bit, a little bit more wide knowledge about what it's like to totally be a reliever. And then, yeah, this year it's been just kind of a continuation of that, kind of an evolution for me, learning how to pitch, kind of what formula works, what doesn't work, how to attack hitters. So, best season I, I'm, as a reliever, yeah. As a starter, I, I had a couple what I would consider pretty good seasons. Being a starter is hard in the big leagues, and you know to go out and throw, you know, close to two hundred innings a few years in a row, I still feel very proud about those years because I, I know how hard that is to do. And in 2015, you went 19-7. and seven. I see that you won your final three starts, so you didn't get a chance to become a 20-game winner. You know, we, we all know that win totals have to be taken with a grain of salt because there are so many factors that go into it. But that said, would winning 20 games, especially in today's era, be something really cool, really meaningful? Yeah, I mean, wins are a wins are a factor of a lot of different things. I don't think they tell the whole story with without a doubt, but I think there are a couple things that they do as a starter that tend to lend themselves towards really good, really good pitchers and really good starters. They stay around a little bit longer in games. Um, if you can stick around till the seventh or eighth inning, then you've given yourself a better chance of winning that ball game, leaving with the lead and and less time for a for a bullpen to have to cover, which is a hugely as a bullpen guy now, it's a hugely valuable thing to have starters who who can and do consistently go deep into games. It's not really our philosophy over here in, in Tampa, and we've we've kind of been able to maneuver around that. But in general, yeah, if you've got four or five horses that are that are going six or seven every time out, it makes your jobs easier in the bullpen. It's very much not, you know, a Tampa thing. It certainly wasn't uh, a Houston thing. You know, A.J. Hinch is in Detroit now, and some of his young pitchers like 
Casey Mize and Tarek Skubal, I think to some extent, are only getting to go three or four innings now that we're late in the season, just trying to keep their arms healthy. So, you know, the actual W means very little to, to that org. Yeah, there's there's not a whole lot that the wins are going to tell you besides he's been out there for a while. He is typically not giving up a ton of runs because you're staying in you're staying in games and giving your team a chance to score. Unless your team is just like I mean, kind of like us, uh, where you're scoring a ton of runs in the seventh inning or later. If you have if you have a lot of wins, that means you're probably you're probably doing your job as a starter, and and your job as a starter is to give your team a chance to win every time out. So it, it's a little bit of luck and a lot of skill. And if a, if a guy gets twenty wins, I still think in today, especially in today's age, that's a huge accomplishment. It sure is. In 2014, Colin, you had a start in Seattle where you K'd the first three batters. Two innings later, you K'd all three batters. In other words, you struck out the side, you know, again, quote unquote, <laughs> twice. Suppose you had also given up a hit or a walk in those innings. Would you still have struck out the side? It's a very good question. And I had this same conversation with, uh, with Andrew Kittredge the other day. Because we were somewhere, I think we were in Toronto last time, and I had told the guys, I was like, if anybody punches out the side in this series, I'll buy you dinner or do whatever. Because I was like, this, I want us to announce our presence with authority here. <laughs> and Kit had one of those innings where he punched out the side. I think he gave up two hits, and I came in. I was like, all right, I gotta, I gotta get you dinner. And he was like, no, 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 no. You can't, you can't reward me for giving up two hits in an inning just because I punched three guys out. I still believe in the the value of a strikeout. I think that. A strikeout is the most efficient way to get guys out. <laughs> you know, you take out a lot of other variables when they just swing and miss at things. So, yes, in my opinion, if you strike out the side, you strike out the side. End of story. Okay, yeah, we disagree, Colin. I think that <laughs> I think you ha- it has to be every batter you face, but that would be a silly argument for, for us to get into in this pod. So let's change direction one more time. You mentioned soccer. Soccer allows ties over an NPB, you know, Japan's top baseball league. They allow ties. Should MLB let games end in ties, say, after 12 innings, rather than arbitrarily march a runner out to second base who didn't earn that? Oh, yes, absolutely. I don't think I haven't talked to a pitcher yet this season who enjoys the way that the extra inning games are going with a runner on second base. It's arbitrarily kind of unfair to a pitcher to have to make pitches in a stressful situation right off the bat. I think that we could go a couple at least a couple innings without it if you wanted to put one in in the 12th inning. Okay, maybe that's a that's another way of doing it. You know, we made the adjustments because we needed to make the adjustments last year. We've continued them this year and and I think that players are starting to see kind of the the drawbacks of, of that in in a, in a few ways. And so yeah, I have I have no problem with games ending in a tie after a certain amount of time. They kind of do in every other major sport and I'm okay with that. I know that America has some aversion to ties, which I don't necessarily understand, but <laughs> I think we can kind of move into the next next phase of of baseball records without having to completely overhaul the system, you know. I do not believe that Arsenal has any ties yet this season, but they certainly will by the time it's all said and done. They certainly have some losses. I know that. (laughs) They started, I believe, with losses and have actually won two in a row, I believe. But have you had an actual opportunity to watch them or has your baseball schedule not had you getting up at 7 a.m.? I watch them as often as I can. I do like it because it is is not baseball and it's not, you know, American football and it's not the thing that everybody knows a lot about and I feel good about just having my own little thing but also like around the world it's 
incredibly popular. And so I, yeah, I get up in the, I get up in the mornings and watch when I can, or at least record them and go back and watch them if, if I get a, an opportunity to, but yeah, I, I love it. It's so much fun for me. Yeah. I am actually a big Everton fan and they had a 1230 Eastern game this weekend. So I was at Fenway for an afternoon and game had to miss it. And when I looked at the score, I guess I was pretty happy that I was at Fenway Park and not watching, uh, watching Everton lose to, I believe, to Villa. So Ah, well, you're not going to win them all, right? You're not going to win them all. (laughs) No, you you are not going to win them all. Are there any Premier League fans in the Rays clubhouse besides yourself? You know, I haven't. I don't think I've run across any specific team fans in this clubhouse. Me and Pete Fairbanks always get into it because I have a way too large uh, collection of soccer jerseys and I will wear them periodically. And he'll see them and be like, is that a team that you like? And I'm like, I mean, not really, but I like the jersey, and so we'll have we'll have a nice little uh, nice little argument about that. But no, in general, I don't think there are any. I take that back. Uh, Luis Patino, Patino's a Barcelona fan, I believe, or Real Madrid. It, sorry, Louis, I don't know, I don't remember which one, but he's he's also a very very talented soccer player. He and Randy Rosarina, both sneaky, very talented soccer players. Outstanding. So not Premier League fans, but big big soccer fans. Yeah, La Liga, La Liga for sure. Right. Let's jump back to baseball. You have two hits in, I forget how many career at-bats I looked up, maybe 30. Where does the first of those hits rank among your career highlights? I mean, my first one was off Clayton Kershaw, and it was a laser up the middle. So I feel great about that. I think that's probably right up there. I have the ball still somewhere somewhere at my house. I think the next inning, I might have given up like a two-run double to Kershaw, though. So it was it was fairly short-lived, that elation that I had. But yeah, I have two hits. They are part of my accomplishment. I don't see pitchers hitting for super long in this game. So uh, I'm going to take them, take them where I have them and, and have my own little slice of baseball history. Yes, your first hit being off of a future Hall of Famer had a lot to do with me asking this question, Colin. <laughs> right. I, got, I remember I got to first base and um, I think Adrian Gonzalez was playing first base at the time. And he just kind of gave me a little pat on the back. And he was like, yeah, not bad to get your first knock off a Hall of Famer. And I was like, yeah, it's pretty cool. It's pretty great. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, like I said, it was it was a little short-lived. That Dodgers team had some uh, had some hitters on it. And they also had pitchers who raked, apparently. Yes. Yeah, speaking of raking, what do you remember about facing Prince Fielder? Oof. I remember a lot of things about facing Prince. He killed us for a few years there in Houston. I uh, felt like we couldn't get him out. I remember, so this is a little story. Me and Evan Gaddis were kind of battery mates for a while. And he was, I love Evan. Evan's one of my one of my favorite teammates I've ever had. And he worked really hard as a catcher. He struggled a little bit with some injuries and, you know, wasn't able to be back there as much as he wanted to be. But whenever we would catch, he would do his homework and he would do a lot of research. And, and we kind of came up with a game plan together. And it was a lot of fun. But we remember we were facing the Rangers. They had beaten us so many times that year. I think it was 2015, uh, 2015 or 2016. And Evan came up to me before the game and he was like, hey, when we face Prince, I was looking at his numbers and, you know, I, I think you don't throw a ton of change-ups. He doesn't really know when it's coming or, or when it's going to be there. And I think change-ups in, he's slugging zero on change-ups on the inner half. He just wants to pull. He's going to pull off. I think we can throw that change-up inner half and we can get him. So second at bat, he calls change-up in. I'm like, screw it. Let's do it. Throw a change-up in. Nasty. Swings through it. I mean, he thinks he's going to pull it into the upper deck. Swings through it. Misses it. Come back around a couple pitches later. Evan calls it again. 
He's like, all right, here we go. I'm like, yes, I'm going to punch him out again. I throw it, and he hits that ball so hard. He hit it, I mean, I think it was off the facing of the upper deck in the old Arlington Stadium. And <laughs> I remember looking at Evan, and we both just kind of shrugged, and we were like, ah, we shot our shot. You know, we gave, we gave it our best bet. But there was not too many ways to get him out when he was swinging well. No, that was the only bomb that he hit off of you, it looks like. But he did go nine for 13, so. Yeah, no, he, he, he saw the ball well out of my hand, as I like to say. Yeah, what about the famous Lomo, Logan Morrison? You're just going to go through all my, man, all my nemesis is here. Ne- Absolutely, nemesis, man. <laughs> yeah, Lomo, I believe he hit, he had two homers off me in one. I, th- I don't know, he probably has five career homers off me, four or five. I believe it's four. Yeah, and there was two in one game at home when, we were, when he was in Seattle. We were playing in Houston. He hit two like way back off of me to right in, uh, in Houston. This is when we still had the old center field and, uh, at Minute Maid, where it was the hill and the, the light pole in center or the uh, flagpole in center field. Just an odd configuration. But his fourth at bat, I believe, we were already getting beat. I was my last inning, I think. And he hit a ball dead center about 434 onto the hill. And I think there's a highlight somewhere of Marisnik going back and like diving up onto the hill and making a catch. But I I very, very reasonably should have given up three homers to him in one game. And we've gone back and me and him have talked about it and laughed about it. And, um, you know, there's just some guys in the league that for whatever reason are so hard to get out. And as hitters, they're so uh, they just I think they just like lick their lips and salivate when when they know you're you're coming to the game. Yeah, let's flip this, Colin. What about Brett Lowry, the old third baseman for the Toronto Blue Jays? Yeah, Brett struggled a little bit against me. I think uh, <laughs> we had uh, we had some good battles because you know with those those good really good A's teams, and then he went to the Blue Jays and some good Blue Jays teams. And yeah, he man, the, the man could hit a fastball. The man could hit a fastball just about anywhere in the zone. And I remember he kind of never came off of it, so you couldn't just. You couldn't ever try and like sneak one by him. And I remember one time, I think it, nobody on maybe second or third inning and he was leading off and I, he was like, I'm going to, I'm going to jump him. I'm going to ambush him here. And I kind of knew that um, in my head, in the back of my head, I was like, I think he's going to try and swing here. So I threw a curveball and I bounced it probably 53 feet. I mean, it had to have barely at the cut of the grass and he swung at it like it was a fastball down the middle and it kind of bounced to the backstop. And I think we both kind of looked at each other and smirked a little bit, but yeah, Brett was, I mean, good, really good player, struggled with some injuries, but um, that was always a fun battle. And I remember talking to Brett Lowry once about his knuckleball. As you know, a lot of position players throw knuckleballs, and uh, he claimed to have a very good one. I believe one of his teammates tipped me after that, said, you know, ask Lowry about his knuckler. A knuckleball in baseball is like a badge of honor. Guys who feel like they have good ones will throw and they'll be like, ooh, yeah, what? Well, this is a good one. And they'll, they'll play catch with you. And every once in a while, they'll throw a really good one that kind of dances a little bit. But I always tell guys, I was like, I watched R.A. Dickey pitch when he was the best pitcher on the planet back in 2012 or 2013, whichever it was. And he couldn't play catch with anybody except for one specific bullpen catcher because he would legitimately injure guys. He would throw knuckleballs like 80 miles an hour. He actually knew where they were going or what generally what they were going to do. And I think he broke somebody's nose early on in his career. And he was like, I can't, I'm not going to do that anymore. So, you know, that will always be the bar that I (laughs) rate guys knuckleball against. I'm like, it was decent for a position player. And how is your knuckleball? It's terrible. It's it's absolutely awful. I don't know what it is, whether it's my fingernails or whether it's the, the way I'm, I like, I don't pronate very well or whatever it is, but I cannot make it do anything. So it's very, very much not worth it to me. I'd rather spin a ball 
100 times out of 100 than try to throw a knuckleball. And what about an EFIS? Have you ever messed around with an EFIS pitch? You know, probably a hybrid of it. You know, for a lot of my career, I threw a big kind of over-the-top slow curveball. It had really good depth to it, and I could kind of throttle that back and forth a little bit between maybe like 68 miles an hour and 78 miles an hour, somewhere in that range. And over the last few years, I started kind of seeing how slow I could throw it with the curveball and get guys to swing and throw it in the zone. So it's not a true like just floater EFIS pitch. It's a, it is a curveball, but if I can get it down, I think I went to Japan in that exhibition series back after the season in 2018, I believe. And uh, over there, I, I remember I struck out Yanagita on a on a curveball. I tried to get it below sixty. I think I got it. It was in kilometers, so I think we were trying to do some some quick math to see what it was. But I think I got it pretty close, maybe like sixty sixty one. Right. So two more questions, Colin. One more on pitching, and this would be uh, another definition question. Is a very slow pitch like they say that Zach Greinke throws at fifty whatever? Is that an actual EFIS, or do you need to lob the ball high in the air for it to be an actual EFIS? So I don't know the etymology of Ephus pitch. Was there a guy named Ephus? Is that what it was that, that did it? No, there was a pitcher back in the 50s or 60s who I'm ashamed of myself for not coming up with his name off the top of my head, but he threw a high arcing pitch. I believe that Ted Williams is the only player who ever took him deep. I mean, that, that makes sense. That makes sense. I would consider what Grinky throws an Ephus pitch. I feel like there's levels to it. There's like... Fastball, BP fastball, EFIS. And so, yeah, I mean, he's throwing a legitimate, normal fastball grip fastball at 51 miles an hour or whatever. So to me, that's about as EFIS as it comes in today's game. Yeah, I would, I would consider it. I would consider it that. Yeah, we, we disagree with this one as well. So Man. Now, actually, Rip Sewell, that, that, that was his name. Okay. Rip Sewell. Okay, so, so last question. You admitted that maybe you're a veteran pitcher. A player who is your age, maybe a month or two older, announced that he's retiring at the end of the year. That would be Alex Avila. Alex was actually a guest on Fangraphs Audio way back, maybe in January or February. And one of the things that we talked about were his possible post-career plans, one of which was to maybe get into, into broadcasting. Pitching careers don't last forever, Colin. So what does your crystal ball show for your future? It's a great question. Um, yeah, you, you kind of have to come to terms with your baseball mortality at a, at a certain age. And uh, while I do feel really good about the way I'm throwing the ball and about uh, you know my potential to be able to continue to do that, yeah, you're always looking down the road and saying – you know what? What are we going to do here? My, you know, my older, just, my older son just got into, just went to kindergarten, so he's going to be in school, in school for the next amount of time. And uh, you know, my wife's got a amazing uh, retail shop in Atlanta, and things things tend to change and evolve. So I don't know exactly when when I'm going to be looking at that as a as an opportunity, but probably sooner than later. And when it comes to to work after baseball, I feel like it would be tough not to use the. Uh, the amount of passion and the amount of knowledge I have just that I've gained over the years, um, just being around really good players to continue to help the game in some way, shape, or form, whether that's broadcasting and helping fans understand it better or whether it's working in a front office and kind of helping guys on the field and guys in the front office be able to communicate better and, and use the things that, that everybody knows to, to the best advantage. 
I could see any of those being being an option. I really enjoyed uh, working for for a couple of these couple of these GMs. I really liked Heim Bloom over in uh, in Boston last year, even though I was only around him for a short time. And then Eric Neander here, uh, you know, he's got a great reputation. We've had a, a lot of really really good conversations. They seem they love James Click over in Houston. So uh, you know, I think that they've <laughs> they've kind of come up with a nice little system here in, in Tampa for for kind of grooming new new heads of baseball around the league. And yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm interested to learn. I'm interested to learn more. The, the more I, I'm around baseball, the more I realize how much I have left to, uh, to know. So all that to say, this is a very dodgy question on my, on my end, but I love baseball. I'd love to stay around it in some capacity and, uh, and we'll see what opportunities arise. Right. So it sounds like baseball and not maybe clerk or assistant manager at a retail shop in Atlanta. You know, I I'm a I'm a average salesman, I think. <laughs> so I, I could be of some service there, but uh, yeah, in general, I, I'd like to be around more with the family. The, the schedule the schedule in baseball is really hard, um, and we've been doing it together for a long time, and you know, it takes its toll on a lot of things. And so I'm very aware of that. My my family and friends are very aware of that, and I think we're all looking forward to see what's next. And we are taking a toll on uh, our allotted time here, Colin. So let's wrap <laughs> with that. And uh, I would like to thank you for coming on to Fangrass Audio. Hey, it's been a pleasure. I probably love talking about baseball more than I should and, and more than my wife and friends and family would, um, would appreciate me. So I, I appreciate the opportunity to do this even more. Super. And uh, thanks, everybody, for listening to Fangrass Audio. Hey, baseball fans. This is David Lorela. My guest is Kyle Bodie. I don't think many listeners really need an introduction for Kyle, but in short, Kyle's the founder of Driveline and until just recently, the director of pitching for the Cincinnati Reds. Kyle, thanks for coming on to Fangraphs Audio. Thanks for having me. We should start, I guess, with the news. What are you able to tell us about your departure from the Reds organization? Yeah, I'm basically the, you know, it's a mutual separation Base, you know, the new leadership, they're not the ones that hired me. So that's just kind of tales old as time, right? It's not baseball or anything else. That's just kind of how it works. And uh, nothing wrong with it. No ill will, uh, just a different direction. I think there's some restructuring going on. The new, I think, pitching coordinator would probably report to someone different. So it's just a complete restructuring, and they definitely wanted to involve me in it. Um, so, you know, there was opportunity to stay on, but it uh, just felt that it was better for a clean break and to kind of move on and see what else was out there. Um, so, yeah, it's no, no hard feelings. I'd certainly appreciate the opportunity Dick Williams and those guys gave me because, you know, I think we had pretty good success, and I hope I delivered value. And at the end of the day, that was uh, – what I wanted to prove and, and do it for Reds fans. And I was really happy to get the opportunity. And we should talk about some of the value that, that you did add. I want to throw in that while Nick Kroll and some of the other leadership group is certainly strong. I think Dick Williams deserves uh, a ton of credit for what he did to the Reds for the Reds before his departure, because he built up an organization you know, inside and out that really wasn't that progressive. So I don't know if you want to share any thoughts on Dick before we move on. I think you covered it. You know, Dick is a visionary. Uh, He was really influential in me joining the Reds, not only from him 
recommending me, but when he interviewed me, uh, as has kind of been told many times, I've had several offers going into that period. And Dick really sealed the deal, I got to be honest. He was a big reason I joined the team, possibly one of the largest. Uh, his vision for what he wanted to do and what he had already done uh, was really important to me. And I, yeah, and we stay in touch every once in a while. So it's always good to hear from him. And I hold him in the highest regard. And honestly, when I had worked with the Reds, you know, over the two years that I worked there, every week or so, without exaggeration, you know, I realized how much work he had put in to get the team and the organization to where it was when I joined. And I think that's something fans can somewhat appreciate. And, and I certainly did going in. But then when you're actually there every day, you start to see how much work he put in to make it happen because it wasn't like, drop Kyle in and then we'll see what happens. Uh, he had really built a whole roadmap heading up to it. So, I mean, it was really impressive and it's, um, it was a mentorship in some ways to, to carry on with myself, not just how we did things on the pitching side, but how to build an organization. Dick really showed me a lot of things. I learned probably as much about that as I did about professional baseball, just uh, being around Dick. And it was awesome. And with the pitching side in mind, what are, Kyle, some of the things that you feel that you accomplished in your two years in Cincinnati? Well, I, you know, I really feel that we were, you know, one of the best in the pandemic year. Uh, it was a tough time to start as a coordinator, director. Uh, at the time, I was just a coordinator and I was the director of initiatives, but not the director of pitching. Uh, that was Caleb Cotham. And so go, go in and how do we work with, a, you know, spring training and then how do we come out of that and how do we work with players remotely you know unfortunately with my experience at driveline using track and our remote training programs i had a lot of experience so you know we we did a lot of work on how do we you know split the teams up assign coaches to each group ownership was extremely supportive um, when most teams were cutting budget and they were releasing scouts and and coaches a lot of teams fired all their coaches or, or furloughed them uh, we didn't do it to one coach and so I got to give ownership a lot of credit there. Uh, they didn't do that to a single person on my staff. And that enabled us to really use the coaches as fo force multipliers to set up programs. You know, we had two days per week. We had Zooms with the staff. Two days per week, we had Zooms with the players. Had a lot of special guests. And I was really proud of that. And then on the other end of it, when we came out, you know, the analysis showed that no team gained better by Stuff Plus. Uh, no organization's minor league pitchers gained better by Stuff Plus prior to the draft than the Reds, except for the Yankees. So the Yankees had the highest gain in Stuff Plus. Obviously, that's run by Sam Breen, my former employee at Driveline. So he did a great job. Uh, and if I got to lose to someone, I don't mind losing to him. And, you know, then we were number two. So then in the overall rankings, uh, it was the Yankees number one, Tampa Bay number two, and then the Reds number three. You know, prior to that, we were 18th. So I really feel like that 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 shows the the skill set uh, that I bring really well. Now during the year we obviously had great results, and I'm sure we'll talk about it. But uh, I'm most proud about you know the the remote side of it, working with players, getting the right coaching staff in there, and you know training our coaches to be those force multipliers. And I think that was something that's um you know still relatively rare in, in professional baseball. And uh, I think it's what proved I proved the most. I think it's what I had the most to prove. Could I run a staff of pitching coaches inside professional baseball, and could we get the results? And I, I feel that the results, you know, really do speak for themselves in that regard. Without a doubt, we should, Kyle, talk about some of the pitch pitching prospects in the Cincinnati system. And I guess Hunter Green would be an obvious place to start. He being the top prospect in in the org. Yeah, Hunter is uh, he's a gifted athlete, and only someone like Hunter, who just turned twenty two, can pitch admirably well in AAA with a 3.7 or something like that ERA. His XERA is right around there too. You know, he doesn't throw fastballs under 100 miles an hour anymore. 
Uh, slider is comfortably sitting 88 to 90, you know, big, big tick up. And only that season could be considered a disappointment to some people. You know, they're like, oh, why isn't he in the big leagues and so forth? And he's pitching so well. And to me, that's the ultimate sign, you know, that Hunter has really transcended, you know, because the last time he pitched full season baseball, he wasn't very good. So that difference from that to where it is now to this being almost considered a disappointment to, you know, is to me like, man, you know, like that's incredible because the expectations for him were, they were high, but, you know, people just didn't really know what to get. And, and that was, you know, some people left him off their top 100 prospect list entirely. And then some people had him listed in the top 30 before the season. And people were like, oh, this, this site is, is ridiculous. They didn't have Hunter even listed in the top 100. And to my, my response to the people that would say that to me would say, like, it's really hard. How, how do you know where to place Hunter if you didn't see him for two years? Uh, and the last time he had pitched full season bowl, he wasn't very good. So there's just going to be a lot of variance around it. But he came out and he really silenced people because the velo was there, the breaking ball. I've been telling people, I told you this, and I, you know, years ago, I told a lot of people, anyone who would listen, I said, the breaking ball is, you all want to talk about the 100 mile an hour fastball, no doubt. I mean, it's a great pitch. It's got more life on it than it usually does. So that's great. He said, but the breaking ball is a real weapon and, and people are going to see that. And then when he pitched this year, and he threw, I remember he threw against Max Meyer at Pensacola when he was still in double A. And then the scouts are like, oh, that's a wipeout breaking ball. And I said, I've been telling everyone, it's been public knowledge. So, you know, it's all kudos to him for working his tail off. I mean, Hunter's a great kid and the best is yet to come. I see him as a front end guy. You know, probably help out the bullpen right away. I know a lot of people want to see that, but uh, he's going to be a guy that takes the ball every fifth day and, and pitches 200 innings. And he's going to be a great, great generational player. Yeah, let's talk about velocity a lot. Velocity is is huge, certainly. You are a huge advocate of of velocity. I think that's well known. Is it a good thing for Hunter Green to be throwing 100-plus with every fastball? Can he sustain that? Can any pitcher sustain that over, say, 200 innings in the big leagues in a season? Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's an open question. I think it's a fair question. You know, there was there was some considerable interest. I wouldn't say backlash, but the Reds. You know, we were the only minor league system that allowed our starters to throw complete games. You know, we were Graham Ashcraft's first start in Double A. Another prospect for us threw a hundred two pitch complete game shutout, nine innings. Only pitcher in the minor leagues, I think, to have thrown a nine inning complete game at that point. Hunter Green was going 95 pitches. He was going 100 pitches. Nick Lodolo was going 90 pitches, 100 pitches, and so. My thought on it is if you limit someone like Hunter to 70, 75 pitches, is it because Hunter's going to go, if he knows he's on a pitch limit, I mean, it's not going to be 99 to 100 every time. It's going to be 104 every time, right? He's going to empty the tank, right? Like there's no, there's no taking it easy. He's a competitor, right? So isn't it better to have him learn how to throttle on and off the gas because his hundred, you know, people say it, but his hundred mile an hour fastball, it's easy, right? It's not, it's not him exerting effort it's not him trying his 100 percent fastball is 104 miles an hour you know when he really lets it go it's 103 to 104 miles an hour but he, he he there are games he doesn't do it one time you know and there are games that he'll do it you know once to one to four times but most of the time he's not going all out you know so for him cruising at 99 to 100 i believe it or not that's like that's easy for him um so i don't know the answer to the question but his effort level is is relatively low if you can believe that you said complete games. That's Some people may listen to this and think, what on earth is a complete game? <laughs> so what has, in the last two years, the Reds' pitching philosophy been as far as pitch counts and, and innings? Yeah, we're trying to develop starters. You know, the starting pitcher is, is kind of going away in today's game, and that was frustrating to me yeah, And because it's just – it doesn't make sense. It's not sustainable to have a bullpen – 
of a ton of righties that throw 95, 97 plus with a slider that are pitching, you know, it, you're cycling way too many guys from AAA. It's it just there's not enough talent. And if we face expansion in the coming years, which I believe we will, then the talent pool will get e- diluted even further. You know, we're already talking about restrictions on rosters and pitchers. And so my idea was to get ahead of it. How do we go a little old school almost and develop those starters to go longer and to go deeper into games? Uh, so our pitch counts were reasonable at the start. You know, they were pretty similar to everyone else. But using stuff like driveline pulse, like that wearable to monitor workloads and actually scientifically progress them from a workload perspective, that's how we decided to treat our pitch counts rather than a a specific pitch count number. Because all the research on pitch counts in professional baseball players shows that there's no relationship between pitch counts and injuries. And furthermore, uh, some of the meta research that J.J. Cooper did at Baseball America shows that there's no... Uh, evidence of the Verducci effect and that like if you increase uh, innings by a certain amount or an injury nexus that you're like in- more likely to be hurt then it, there's just no evidence of it uh, and the evidence that does exist for pitch counts any effect of pitch counts in professional baseball actually shows a, a relationship between restricting pitch counts and increased injuries you know which I don't necessarily buy but the reality is is there's no evidence to to show that limiting pitch counts actually improves the injury situation so if we're limiting pitch counts and they're not helping players stay healthy and additionally we're not building deeper starters and we're continuing to go to the bullpen more and we're exposing more players to high effort throws to me that whole system is built to increase injuries and to increase roster churn and uh, that's what i really wanted to try to make a dent in and i feel like we were pretty successful especially at the double a and up level at the a ball levels we were a little more conservative but at double and triple a you know we treated it like the big leagues and and i really got to thank the managers and the pitching coaches who had my back on that Injuries are one thing, Kyle. What about the performance part of the equation? One reason that pitchers don't go deep into games is, of course, third time through the order and having, you know, having to face, well, even four times, really, you know, a good lineup. In order to do that, does a pitcher truly need to have at least three, if not four or five pitches or have improvements on stuff? You mentioned stuff plus. Does that maybe allow pitchers to actually go a third, fourth time through the order with a fairly limited arsenal. Yeah, I think it's really difficult to get through the lineup in the big leagues or even a good AAA lineup uh, three times without a third pitch. I just think it's really tough. Hunter, you know, showed that, you know, having an elite fastball, elite slider and a developing changeup. He was getting hit, you know, in AAA every once in a while because he didn't have feel for the slider. I mean, he's just going to the fastball. And while his command of it is quite good, he can get it into the top third regularly. You know, he needs he needs a third pitch. So to have that, the changeup and he's developing a cutter as well, I think would make him a more complete pitcher. So I really do believe that. And then you can see when a guy like Hunter is on, it's overpowering, right? He's just, he's blowing guys away. They have no chance, right? It's, it's like, you know, it's like a DeGrom or a Scherzer or anyone else that's a power pitcher that, you know, the the batters can do absolutely nothing. And then when you see Lodolo, who's on, when he's on, it's the same domination, but it's done in a very different way. You know, he's a lefty. Now his velo is pretty good too. He was sitting 95, but it's more like the old school pitching that you would see. So like, you know, not a Roger Clemens was overpowering guys, but it'd be like, you know, even like a Tom Glavin, you know, and while now Lodolo throws considerably harder and he doesn't have exactly the command of Glavin. It's it's watching a guy surgically take apart hitters uh, with five weapons uh, and using them the way you know in the ways that he wants to. And that, it's fun to watch both guys. You know, you, you're really blessed. You know, with either one and Graham Ashcraft too. I mean, it was really fun to watch those three go to work. Right. So Lodolo is a pitcher who has a, a very diverse arsenal. Oh yeah, absolutely. And him adding the cutter. 
to his uh to his repertoire this year has been has been huge you know so having a, a you know four seam fastball two seam fastball curve slider cutter change you know having six pitches almost uh, at any given time is just incredible to watch and the changeup definitely is is big for a lefty uh but being able being able to get the cutter into righties was it was a game changer this year and Lodolo is, of course, a high-profile pitcher, as is Hunter Green. When we did a print interview last summer, we focused mostly on under-the-radar, some actually way under-the-radar guys. One of the players we talked about was Braxton Roxby, who I believe had a 9-something ERA at a D- D2 school before he was signed. He was borderline unhittable this year in high A, and then I think he hit a little bit of a wall maybe after being promoted to double A. Yeah, Braxton, you know, he's he was going to go to low A with everyone else. We had him in the low A group. You know, that would be Stevie Branch, Vincent Benelli, James Proctor, you know, a lot of our players, Carson Spires. So he was right in that group with all the non-drafted free agents. But spring training, he just absolutely carved guys, never gave up a run. And then I challenged him. I put him in a double A game. I said, hey, I want you to cover double A. We're a little short on in innings. Uh, and he wasn't even pitching in the high A group. And I said, I wanted to jump you a level and let's do two levels and let's just see what happens. And he went up there and he punched out the first two hitters on seven pitches. And then the third hitter, he got the ground out on four pitches. And then the double A pitching coach came up to me and he's like, what? This guy can pitch at my level right now. And I said, he's not pitched at any level. He's got zero pitches thrown. And the double A pitching coach, Rob Wooten, was like, oh, you kidding? I was like, no, he's, he's, he hasn't pitched yet. And he's like, man, I mean, that's electric. You know, he's around the zone and his command is still coming along, but you know, his control was pretty good. So uh, we made the decision shortly thereafter to jump him straight to high A to Dayton. And he, so he's the first non-drafted free agent to reach Dayton. And so he really pitched the lights out there for sure. And then for him to go to double A and get that experience where, hey, this is a little different. You can't throw everything down the middle. It doesn't work that way. You know, you do have to command the ball in and out. It was good. It was really good for him. So it was disappointing that he went to double A. I know he was disappointed to go to double A and get hit pretty bad. But on the other hand, he was 22 and had just re- it was his first year of professional baseball and he reached double A. So I think that's a pretty darn good accomplishment. You know, and he's going to be in the double A work group next year, I'm sure, would be my guess. You know, that's where I would have had him. So that's a that's a win by any standard, you know, by his standard, maybe not. But but for for an organization to sign someone for twenty thousand dollars out of the University of Pittsburgh, Johnstown, Division two, who had a nine ERA in college and to get him to double A and to have be one of the best pitchers in high A, that's a pretty good win for the organization. You mentioned Stevie Branch a few minutes ago. Stevie was, was it RIT that he came out of, I believe? That's right. Yes, Rochester Institute of Technology. He really came out of nowhere this year. He got onto my radar pitching in Dayton. His numbers were absolutely eye-popping. You know, what, what made him so good just out of the blue? Yeah, I mean, they're ridiculous, the numbers, you know, and he was a four-year kid at RIT, didn't pitch much early. Uh, was a starter because just like Roxby, they were starters because, you know, they were so far ahead of the talent at their smaller schools. Obviously, RIT is Division Three, And so we but we came in and, we, and he was throwing hard. He always threw hard, you know, but after training in the pandemic year and really buying into what we were teaching him, I mean, the velo was going instead of 93, 95. Now we're talking 95, 97 every time. It's like, OK, I mean, that's. It's legit. You know, we had him start a little. We had him open in spring training. We had him do everything. And even in low A in Daytona Beach, we had him do everything. And in the beginning, he was getting hit and he was walking guys. A pretty, pretty decent clip. And but the stuff was there and he always had like a four ERA. So you're like, ah, this kid's pretty good, you know. And then um, he just really dialed it in. He was one of those guys that really bought into how we train relievers, which you know, I'm not going to get 
too in the weeds on, but you know, we, we had a specific way on how we train relievers in season, which was different than every organization that I've been with and any that I've heard from. And he really bought into it and it was more work than most organizations and people, but by using pulse and by using uh, wearables and by using, you know, sports science initiatives and biomechanics, we were able to keep his workload down and we exposed him. He was mostly the two inning guy in Daytona beach. And then in Dayton, he was the two inning guy as well because we wanted to keep the idea of him being a starter open because he did throw four pitches. And while his command is not great, he did get it around the plate. And then in Dayton, he continued that, that kind of alternative reliever schedule that we, we implemented and his velo. I mean, it was, it was getting, it was getting ridiculous. You know, there were outings that he was 97 to 99 every time out, you know, he didn't throw a fastball under 97, right. Uh, in some outings and his breaking ball was, was pretty loose, but it was coming along and the cutter that he was adding had a lot of promise and he would really just never get to the changeup because, you know, he didn't have a lot of reason to get to that. So, you know, we're hoping, I'm hoping to see some changeups in, in 2022, whether he starts in high A or double A, you know, we'll see. But, um, yeah, there's a real, a real promise there. And he really just took to training. And that's, and that's what you can see with those kids that are from the north and they don't have a ton of experience. And maybe they went to an academic school where they didn't have a ton of time to train, you know, so just devoting resources to those guys is huge. You never know. And again, that's another $20,000 non-drafted free agent sign from the legendary scout Lee Saris. And he's the one that covers that. He covered that area for the Reds. You know, he's down in the Carolinas, but Lee is a guy that he'll cover, uncover any rock. And you need a guy like Lee in your corner to find those types of players. So all credit to Lee for finding him and uh, credit to the pitching coaches for, you know, for working with him. And, and obviously Stevie deserves all the, the most of the credit for, for getting it done. Yeah, a few more things, Kyle. I did not see Stevie Branch pitch. He had just been called up to Dayton when I made a visit there at the end of July. But I, the game that I did see prior to the game, I was watching Lion Richardson, who I believe here at Fangrass we have as the Reds' number three pitching prospect. He was throwing a side session with the Dragons pitching coach, Brian Garman. And not surprisingly, they had a Rapsodo on hand and would speak between not every pitch, but often. You weren't there, but you probably have a pretty good idea maybe about what that process would have looked like, or should I say sounded like? Yeah, absolutely. You know, Brian Garmin, I've known him. I trained him when he was a pitcher in pro ball, and, you know, we followed each other for a long time now. So, and he's from the Dayton area. So it was really cool that he could coach there. And he's just an exceptional pitching coach, you know, one of our best pure coaches. And, and in a session like that, Lion is very different than a Roxby or a Branch, right? He's very talented, but he's, you know, one of the holdover pitchers, you know, that we inherited, uh, which, and he had a lot of success at 19 years old in low A. And that's really rare to be that good at that, at that a full season level for a hundred innings. So how you, how you talk to Lion and how you get concepts through to him is different than how you get it through to a Carson Spires or a Roxby or a Branch or Proctor when they're new, you know, so you you can't tell Lion that what he's doing is bad because that doesn't make sense, right? He was he's an elite prospect and things are going pretty well, but how can you sharpen his breaking ball? You know he was having trouble in Dayton early uh, because the breaking ball just wasn't um, it wasn't getting anyone out, right? So how do you how do you sharpen that up while also respecting how much work he had done and how good he was prior to that? So I think that was the the kind of the mix there. So talking to him and ensuring him that he's on the right track and working with him is is very different than someone who's probably a little bit more analytical. And speaking to Brian briefly, you know, that same day, he mentioned that they were working on one specific pitch. I'm forgetting exactly what it was, but he said that Lion is very, very dedicated and very precise in the work that he does. Yeah, he's he's really, you know, he takes care of business off the field extremely well. You know, he trains at a facility that's considered one of the best in baseball, you know, Cressy Performance down in Florida. 
He takes care of his body. He's one of the strongest players in the Reds organization by body weight, and that means position players and pitchers. He's just got not only natural strength, but he really works at it. Uh, and his just dedication to the game is is unquestioned. You know, it's 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 pretty incredible. So when you have a guy with a strong personality like that, the art of coaching is being able to meet him halfway and to meet him, you know, further than that, to meet him on his territory, and, you know, and get him to buy into what we're trying to do. Yeah, we should touch at least briefly on uh, Carson Spires because he is somebody that you have spoken highly of in our conversations over the years. So maybe give a little snapshot of what he brings to the table and what Reds fans may see in the big leagues. Yeah, it's a kid that I think, you know, deserves a ton of credit. He's, you know, someone asked me once in an AMA, you know, who's the most under the radar player for the Reds? And they're like, oh, it's got to be Graham Ashcraft. You know, no one's talking about that guy. And I said, oh, I, th- I think a lot of people are talking about a guy that throws 97 to 100 mile an hour cutters. You know, he's just, he throws, you know, sits 97 to 100, all cutters, nasty slider, developing changeup through a CG shutout in his first outing in double A, never threw strikes, you know, and then we came in and with some changes, now he's throwing a ton of strikes. So, and he gave up two home runs. I think ever in pro ball, you know, his just ability to get the ball on the ground and inability to hit the ball for power off of him is, is a really unique combination, right? It's very, very Kevin Brown-esque, very Brandon Webb-esque, you know, instead of a slider, instead of a sinker, it's a cutter, but it's a very similar type of thing. So it's pretty cool. And so then you have Spires, you know, who now no one's talking about that guy. Now he's a closer at Clemson. He was 88 to 90 and a sinker change up really good. Breaking ball, not a factor at Clemson. Families, big baseball family. Whole family played for Clemson, played for Jack Leggett, played for Monty Lee. Obviously his uncle played 12 years in the big leagues, Bill Spires. So it's a baseball family. You know, they know how to handle their business. Carson was a little bit behind compared to his, his family, his father, his uncle and, and so forth. But, you know, his dedication to the game was equal, if not higher, you know, than them. I think his family would say that. And so when he really took to the training, you know, he came to Instructs. He's one of the few guys from the non-drafted class we invited. You know, his command was so good that I just said, you know, there has there has to be a starting pitcher in here. You know, so and he had never started in college. So we converted him and the command held up. His velocity picked up over the training period and he was 90-93 a lot of outings. It's like, oh, that's pretty good. You know, he's getting there. Both breaking balls became real weapons. The big slider that he has was very similar to Roxby's. Uh, and then he has a cutter, like a harder pitch that was his, that he developed. Uh, he scrapped the two seam fastball, went to the four seam fastball, has pretty good carry at a low launch angle. So, you know, he's, he's developed three pitches that he didn't have coming into the year. I mean, that's incredible. You know, and then he's starting. He threw a hundred innings. I mean, that's just incredible for a kid to come in, never start. He's a sinker changeup guy and he goes to high, high carry four seam guy, scraps the sinker entirely and it develops two breaking balls and the changeup stays as good. And had a 370 ERA, yeah, and then really pitched well in high A. He closed out the no hitter that we had in low A. And you're talking about a kid that signed for twenty thousand dollars, non drafted guy that was a reliever in college, like Roxby and Branch, you know, and Timpanelli. We actually converted him to starting, and he was our he was our rock in Dayton. I mean, he was he was our guy, and he was uh, it was really impressive. So to me, Carson Spires got a chance to be something special. Uh, when you compare his stuff and you compare his command with um, first, second, third rounders from this year, it's as good or better. I mean, we're talking about a guy that can really pitch, and he's got really good stuff. And his velocity was touching 96 at the end of the year, uh, sitting 92-94, right? And so, man, I mean, we're talking about a real special chance to go not only be a great big league pitcher, because I think he can, but from where he was, you know, I don't think anyone would have predicted it. I certainly wouldn't have. Maybe Carson did, because he's that he's that kind of confident guy. But I'm really proud of him, and I'm proud of Brian Garman and Forrest Herman for really working with him so hard. 
And I think that a lot of people should be proud of the work that, that you did in your two years with the Reds. So we can maybe close by circling back really to where we started. You just spoke in great depth about a number of important pitchers in the system. And while you're not invested in their future anymore directly, you still care, I think, about how how they progress as pitchers. So how just how difficult is it for you to sever this relationship and suddenly they're not under your umbrella anymore? You know, it, it was going into it. It felt, okay, hey, I always knew this could happen. You know, for the last couple of months I was with the Reds, I could feel, you know, a rift was probably opening a little bit between, you know, the front office, the farm director and me and just a different, you know, inheriting an employee, you know, from a different leadership. I get it, you know, no, no problem. And so I was kind of emotionally preparing myself for that. I, you know, I wanted a, a greater role. I felt I had more to give. You know, they disagreed. Uh, and that's okay. You know, that's life. No big deal. And I hope I've set up the systems for success, you know, that they can, see with, can succeed with someone different. Because, like, that was my whole goal. It's not about me. It's about the players. It's not about the organization. It's about the kids. So I was kind of emotionally preparing myself. And I, I was okay when the conversation happened with Nick. And obviously not getting into details. But it was okay. It was very businesslike. And it was very professional. And the way they handled it was was with class. And so I will say that. So that was okay. There was no real emotion there. My wife asked me if I was okay. And it was okay. You know, it's, it's all right. But I'll be honest, David. You know, when those kids started texting me, I mean, it was tough. It was really hard. You know, you get really emotional. You know, they're all saying about uh, how they're going to miss me, and you know that that they'll they'll take they'll take what we learned, and um, that was tough. You know, because you hear from your top prospects, you hear from the top guys like an Ashcraft and those guys, and no doubt you want to see those guys succeed. Ashcraft's a big leaguer. You know, as soon as next year, probably could have pitched in the big leagues this year if you're being if we're being honest. You know, that's that's great to see. But when you have kids that sign for $20,000 that may not have been drafted in a 40-round draft, you know, much less 20, and they're talking, and I think that they're big leaguers, our pro scouts think they're big leaguers, and they're reaching out saying, you know, I wouldn't be in this position without you, without the coaches. I mean, that was hard, I'll be honest. You know, it was it was uh, very emotional for me for a couple of days when, when I had a flood of texts from about 20 or 30 players, you know, missing, you know, saying their goodbyes and so forth. But, you know, I reminded them it's baseball is a small game, and it's not goodbye, you know, forever. I'll, I'll still be in the game whether I – you know, take one of these interviews. Yeah, I have a couple interviews to be, you know, at a higher level than I was at, you know, not just pitching, but maybe above that. Um, and if I decide to do that, you know, you stay around the game and you, and you, you stay with these kids. I mean, I, I'll always talk to them and I'll always hope that, uh, I'll always hope the best for them. You know, and some of those guys do train at driveline, so I will get to see them. But yeah, I love it. I love those kids. I mean, it's, it's, it's about them. And I think that's what I'm most proud about. You know, you asked me at the beginning what I was proud about and, to close the book, that's what I'm most proud about is that we developed a great relationship with the kids, that our coaches developed authentic relationships. You know, they were relentless and they were connected. They were connected with all of our players. And uh, that's honestly, from my perspective, that's what I feel the most proud about is that I developed a great coaching staff. These coaches worked their asses off and they developed players and they were in it for the right reason. They weren't in it, weren't in it for a paycheck. They were in it to create some big leaguers. And so when you see third and stuff, second biggest stuff gain, you know, strikeout rate, largest gain ever, you know, in all minor league baseball, we, we outgained everyone. And you think, man, that's really cool from a sabermetric perspective. It's really cool from a fantasy baseball perspective. It's really cool from a GM perspective. It's all true. I'm not trying to take any away of that. But then when you find out what it means to the kid, it's hard not to get emotional. You know, as the fake Billy Bean said in the Moneyball movie, you're like, how could you not be romantic about baseball? And that's it. You know, when you see kids that were, you know, just seen as org fillers that are going to pitch in the big leagues, I mean, man, it does make you tear up a little bit. There's no no denying it. 
So you want the focus to be on the pitchers that you worked with, but but one last quick question about yourself. How long after the news came out that you were leaving the Reds did somebody reach out? <laughs> was it was it same day or is it a matter of oh, uh, an uh, hour? Yeah. No, yeah, it was actually 10 minutes. I, so I got to be, you know, I talked to Nick and we're like, all right, this is how it's going to happen and here's how we're going to release the statements. It's going to be okay, you know, and fine. It was a very professional discussion. Uh, not through Nick's fault, but, you know, accidentally through kind of how it got transmitted, the major league GMs kind of found out about the contract non-renewals for both me and CJ Gilman, the hitting coordinator, almost instantaneously after that talk. And again, it's not maliciousness or anything like that. And it wasn't Nick. It was basically someone, you know, in the Reds kind of accidentally released it. It's no big deal. It wasn't public, but it did get out and it's okay. There, again, no problem. And I wasn't mad about it. But I it basically over the internal messaging service with the GMs, they kind of went out and I, I, I got a call 10 minutes later from a GM and he's like, hey, you're a free agent. Hey, man, congrats. You know, and uh, I would love to let's talk. Let's catch up next week. And I'm like, hey, uh, thank you. That's true. You know, how do you know that? <laughs> and he said, oh, I went out over the list, you know, and I was like, OK. So then I had to call Nick and we had to clear that up. And after being a little bit confused, I said, OK, you know, we were going to wait until Monday to release the statement because, you know, wait till the end of the minor league season so I could talk to my coaches and players. And, you know, and it just it, it just it was a, an error in processing. It was an honest mistake. It's OK. No one. He was he was you know upset about it. You know, I was I was in it and we but it was OK again, like no big deal. And so then I, I kind of sped up my statement. I had to call the coaches and kind of scramble. But I, to be honest, uh, I heard about my impending free agency uh, before I even knew it happened in some ways. <laughs> so, you know, it was it was within 10 minutes. I got a call from a GM. And then uh, over the next day, I got about five emails and texts from uh, GMs, AGMs that want to know what my next move is. So it's still really early in September, you know. Um, but I'm pretty motivated to to kind of move on to a higher level um, by November 1st. Uh, and if that happens, awesome. And if not, you know, a special assistant, you know, type role, consulting role would probably be what I'll go for, you know, dedicate my time at driveline. But if there's someone out there that wants to, you know, move me in, in, up in the, in the chain, you know, whether it's assistant general manager or senior VP, you know, I'm certainly open to talk and I think I'll have some opportunities. So if it's the right situation, I'd be happy to do it again. I'm sure that there are a lot of teams, Kyle, that would, would love to have you in their front office in their player development system. I guess we should close there. Kyle, thanks again, as always, a friend of Fangraphs and for coming on to the podcast. Oh, my pleasure. And thanks for all the work you do. Uh, you know, the light that you shine on minor leaguers that are below the radar, that are not on prospect lists, so to speak. And to be able to talk about a Carson Spires, to be able to talk about a Stevie Branch, I mean, that's baseball to me. That's everything about baseball. And you know, Lion Richardson and Graham Ashcraft and Hunter and Lodolo take nothing from them, no doubt. But this game is built on on those guys, those those dreams there. It's not just depth. It's not org guys. And that's the message I hope that your listeners hear because it's those stories to me that make baseball the beautiful game that it is. So thank you for every opportunity I can to spread that message. And thank you, everybody, for listening to Fangraphs Audio. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Thank you to Colin McHugh and Kyle Bodie for joining us. If you enjoyed the show, tell a friend, or perhaps go leave us an iTunes review. We could use some new ones, and I may even read yours here on the pod. I also recommend the Fangraphs newsletter, which is a great way to stay up to date on what we have going on every weekday. And of course, if you're able to help us out, head on over to the Fangraphs.com store and consider an ad-free membership for yourself or as a gift. Be excellent to each other, and we'll talk to you next week.